We are in part seven of our Connecting with God series in this year of connecting, right? 2020, the year of connecting. We're going to be going through the book of Ephesians throughout the year. We got a couple verses we're going to cover, but but first I wanted to draw your attention to the fill in the blank uh, with a couple thoughts here, and it has a little bit of a story and then some verses attached, kind of get our hearts in the right place. Uh, it starts out a little bit dark because you can't know the good news till you know the the bad news, right? So we're going to talk a little bit about how things went south and then how Jesus turned things around, yeah? So let's recap this in case you're brand new to this whole thing. God started everything out with his people safe and secure, enjoying his presence. It's what God has always wanted was his people with him safe and secure. And that's how it all started. Well, we know how that story went. Adam and Eve uh, made this determination that they were going to do it their way. But God had made it super clear. He said, hey, there's a tree right there. Like, if you eat this tree, you're going to die. I mean, it wasn't fuzzy. It wasn't like I didn't understand the instruction manual. There was none of that. It was super obvious. Eat that, you'll die. Well, they said, well, maybe. It was not an opinion. It was a fact. So they ate of the tree based on their own selfishness and wanting to be in charge of their own lives. And that allowed sin to enter in and start everything breaking down, right? We know that part of the story. But what we may forget is that God is always going to burn up and get rid of any sin. And sin now was stuck to all the people, Now, God is not against the people, he's against the sin. But if the sin is in the people, then all of a sudden his wrath starts coming after them. It's a whole reason why we needed Jesus to clean out the sin so that that's not held on us anymore, right? So as a matter of fact, when we read through passages like Romans 5, 12 through 21, we realize through one man, Adam, everything fell apart, but through one man, Jesus, many will be saved. Yep. I mean, isn't that the story of the Bible? All right. So here's the thing I need us to understand. In the book of Revelation, it says that the eternal dwelling place of the damned is called the lake of fire. Hell gets emptied out into that, and that is the eternal dwelling place of those apart from God. But I want you to Pay attention very closely to how he describes it and what it's for. It says this, And hell emptied its contents into the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There is no mention of people at all. It's not for people. The fact that people are going there means they're joining on to a team of which God said, I'm shutting down the bad guys so my people will be safe again. The very idea that we would want to be on that team separated from life was not the whole original point. God said, it is his will that none shall perish, but all have eternal life. That's what he wants, but we are hurtling the wrong direction. We, in our own sin, in our own decisions, in our own selfishness, are heading straight for eternal separation from God. So Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, comes into our reality and starts waving his hands going, hey, everybody, 
You gotta go this way. I want to rescue you. I don't want you going that way. And many of us are still saying, hmm, we'll think about it. It's not an opinion. It's saying, if you go this direction, you're going to die. So I'm here to make sure you go this direction because from the moment I created you, I always wanted you safe. I always wanted you with me. I always wanted to spend time with you. He told his followers when he was going to die, he said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you so you can come and be with me. It's what God has always wanted. But make no mistake, the enemies of God have to be shut down. Why? Because his kids aren't safe as long as the enemies are around. So they're going to be silenced. Anything that is sin is against life because God is the only thing that is life. So anything that's outside of that has to be burned away. And so in order to burn it away, God's wrath comes down to eliminate that which is attached to sin. Now, the reason why I bring all this up is I'm going to read a series of verses so that you can understand how it's going and how Jesus wants it to go, right? So let me just read these to you. John 3:36 says this, whoever believes in the Son, that's Jesus, has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So, in other words, there's two trajectories. One heading down, one heading up. All right? Romans 3.10, because some of us then go, man, well, it's a good thing I'm not a super bad guy. Well, hold on. Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good not even one. Well, that pretty much wrapped everyone else up, yeah? Is it was kind of like, well, the standard's perfection. What's funny is people are still doing this whole, I'm a good person thing. Not quite sure what that means. Because here's what's funny, you're matching yourself up against me? Like I'm the low bar, right? Like the, I'm not the standard. If you're trying to match yourself up against other humans, that's kind of silly, right? Because the standard is perfection, it's Jesus. Any sin disqualifies. So no one has an excuse to say, I'm a good enough person to do it on my own, right? So then we reach Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified, meaning made perfect by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? In other words, his point was always to rescue. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here's my point, and it's the fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you. It is this, connection brings a glorious future. Connection brings a glorious future. Why? There are two trajectories. There's a trajectory towards distance from God, and there's a trajectory towards life with God. The only way we're getting to life with God is connection to Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Therefore, connection is the issue. 
Are you connected with Jesus? Will you allow him to be your savior, your deliverer? Will you allow him to be your king? This is the big question. It's why we're doing a whole year on connecting with God because only once we're connected with God do things start working rightly. Everything is about connection. Now, because we are the family of God and so many of us have said yes to Jesus Christ, there are some glorious realities. There is amazing things that are now a part of our life, and I want to highlight those for you today. Would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17? Ephesians chapter 1, excuse me, verse 11. Ephesians 1, 11. Sorry about that. I jumped ahead in my heart, apparently. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. We're just doing two verses today, 11 and 12. And we're going to talk about some pretty extraordinary things that Jesus Christ has given to his children. If you are not a child of God or have never had a chance to start a relationship with Jesus Christ, man, today's the day, right? Because he has his arms open wide saying, I just need you to get over yourself and come hang with me. I will take care of it. I'll do the heavy lifting and I will be your rescuer, right? This is, it is wide open. We are not an elitist group. We are an inclusive group, and we will be shouting every day, come on in, come hang out with the family of God, come be a child of God, let Jesus rescue you, yeah? That's what we are all going to be saying in our hearts, and that's what we're praying for. So let's take a look, because we want everyone to be able to celebrate these great things. So I'm going to read the two verses, just for context, and then I'll kind of go back and pull them apart one by one. All right, here we go. Here's what it says. In him, meaning in Jesus... We have obtained, received, an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Well, that sounds fancy. Man, I read that stuff and I'm like, mm, I don't really know what you're talking about. So let's take it real slow. Let's just pick the first phrase. In him... We have obtained an inheritance. And I don't know about you, but to me, inheritance today only means cash. Someone died, cash got dispensed. That's all it means. Like, I don't have any deep meaning about that. And as a matter of fact, it always seems sad, right? But in the biblical ancient world, inheritance was a super thick concept. And the Jews especially were all about it. And you're never going to understand the power of what we just read if you don't get into an ancient Jewish mindset. So I'm going to spend a good portion of our morning getting you into that mindset so you can appreciate what incredible things God has given you, right? So let's talk about inheritance for a moment. Now, I don't know why God created this system, but he created a system whereby things were transferred from family downward, right? So for example, you know, we get these ideas of the firstborn son gets a double portion, right? You've read stories like that in the Bible, right? And this is where all the ladies get ticked off, right? <laughs> and I'm, I'm not the firstborn son in my family, so I think it's dumb too, right? You know what I mean? Like, like my brother would get all that stuff. Forget that. That's lousy. Glad we ditched that. You know what I mean? But there's a particular story that talks about how multi-layered this is, and it's one of the most famous stories about it. So I'm gonna just going to share it with you, but we need to get a little history lesson, yeah? God originally started the Jews with a man named 
Abraham, so Abraham's always first. He had a son named Isaac. Isaac had a son named Jacob, and Jacob had a son named Joseph. So it goes Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, just so you have an idea. We're gonna pick one of the dudes in the middle named Jacob. Now, his story is interesting from day one. Why? Because he's a twin, right? Do we have anybody that's a twin here today? Anybody, any twins here? Yeah, come on, anybody else? All right, good, we got a few of those all the way in the back. All right, now, if you're a twin, there's something unusual about that because you have somebody always in your space. There's somebody always trying to take your stuff, right? You're like, I'm an individual, and you have to tell everybody that for the rest of their lives, right? Okay, so they were twins, and interestingly enough, that when they had the children, the one that was born first gets the firstborn title. Now it's a drag. They're like one second ahead of you, right? It wasn't like they did anything dramatic. They just happened to pop out first, right? And they get more stuff. All the moms disagree with the whole popping out thing, but whatever. I'm a guy, I don't know what I'm talking about. So anyway, so they have their first child. And when he comes out, and this is where I just, the Bible to me is funny. So when he pops out, they go, dang, he's red and hairy. So they named him Red, right? So his name is Esau, which means red. He was all red haired and he was so hairy that they had to comment on it. They're like, oh look, a baby goat, <laughs> right? So I don't know what's going on with this kid, but you're gonna find out. He wasn't just kind of hairy, he was like uber hairy, right? Well then, as he's coming out, his brother, for whatever creepy reason, is hanging on <laughs> to his ankle, right? Which it's just like, they're like fighting in there and he finally got out first. The other one's hanging on and they're like, ha he's trying to take advantage of his brother. We're gonna call him deceiver. What the heck? Jacob means deceiver. Talk about casting a weird identity for your child, right? I mean, right off the bat, yep, you're corrupt. Just go, go ahead and walk in that truth. Well, he did, right? And he's a messed up kid. But anyway, so he starts out, but when he comes out, he's like the hairless boy wonder, right? So it's like all the hair in the womb transferred to one kid and nothing on the other one, slick as a whistle, right? <laughs> So now they have these two kids. Well, it, now remember, when I talk about biblical families, these are not role models. They are the most dysfunctional people ever, right? It is days of our lives, Bible style, right? The only thing they're missing is amnesia. You understand what I'm talking about? Everything else is legit. So in this dysfunctional home, these two kids split out Total stereotype, right? So if you go, oh, Pastor, you're kind of being stereotypical. I know, it's in the Bible. Okay, great. So what happens is Harry boy takes on like the manly man thing where he's like, I hunt and I grunt. And, you know, he's that guy, right? He just kind of, right? And he shoots stuff and kills stuff. All right, dad is like, that's my boy. Check that guy out. Yeah, he's awesome. He scratches a lot, that guy, right? Dad's totally into him. Well, mom's like, well, if you like him, I like hairless boy wonder, right? So she takes him under her side and the whole family is divided. Well, sure enough, they grow up radically different. It says that one was a hunter and one hang out among the tents, right? So he's like, I'm reading a book. You know, he's, he's this guy, right? 
Well, then hunter guy is coming in and he's not exactly the sharpest tool in the shed. So he comes back and he's like, man, I'm so hungry. I could die, right? Which is a little extreme, right? Well, his brother's like, I've been whipping something up in the kitchen, right? So he has this little bowl of soup and the guy's like, hey, give me some soup. And he's like, he's like, well, nope, it's my soup, right? So he's like, well, I'm going to die anyway. What, what, what do you want? And he's like, well, I want your birthright. Wait, you want my what? What's a, so a birthright was that idea of inheritance and blessing. It was almost like a supernatural endowment from God. Now, they didn't even know if they believed in this stuff, right? So he's like, whatever, I don't care. You can have my magical birthright thing. I just want the soup. I'm gonna die here because you gotta remember, we're in the ancient world. They can't just pop in a Hot Pocket. You know what I'm saying? In the microwave, right, or a Pop-Tart. You gotta like make it from scratch. So he's like, man, I don't have time for that. He goes, fine, whatever. And what happens? He says, I sell you my birthright and he has the soup. Now, things start getting more and more tense. Well, by the time dad is getting really old, and he's really old, how do we know? I mean, this guy, he's blind, right? He can't see, and he's having a hard time tracking on things. Well, mom hears him talking to Harry boy. So he's like, hey, I need you. I'm about to die here, and I need you to give you a blessing. So how about you go out and shoot and kill something, make me some food, and then I'll give you a blessing. Well, the mom hears this, and the mom and dad, this is total dysfunction, so she's like, hey, while he's gone, we're gonna take advantage of this situation. So she has Smooth Boy go and get a couple goats, and they cook up something, and she takes the sheepskin and puts it on the back of his neck, which is just gross, right? They don't even have time to dry this thing. It's like leaking down. So they put it on the back and they put it on his hands, right? And then she dresses him in Esau's clothing and she's like, all right, take this soup and go in and get the blessing from your dad. Okay, which is super messed up on a bunch of different levels, yep. So he comes in, he's like, no way, dad's never gonna fall for this. She's like, ah, he's falling for worse, right? So. <laughs> He comes in and he's like, he's like, hey, dad, I'm, I'm here for your blessing. And he's like, mm, that don't sound like my son. That sounds like the other one, right? And so he goes, wait, come close and reaches up and grabs him by the back of the neck and pulls him close, right? Which he had, and when, you gotta be super hairy when you can't tell the difference between a sheep and your son. You understand what I'm talking about? That's a fuzzy dude. So he's like, oh yeah, it feels like my son, right? And then he pulls him close and he can smell his clothes. And he's like, oh, okay, I don't understand what's going on right now, but I'm blind, so maybe I'm messed up. So I'm just telling you, okay, I guess this is my son. And he goes, how did you get done with the hunt so fast? Jacob has no problem lying. He's like, man, God must be good on, on me. You know, he just helped me out. No, he didn't, you're a liar, right? <laughs> well, he falls for it and he puts a blessing, a prophetic blessing onto Jacob that was really meant for Esau. So then they scurry out of the room and Esau comes back and goes, dad, you know, he's sweating. He's like, hey, I got that stuff that you asked me for. Dad's like, no, dude, I just, I just blessed you. No, you didn't. And all of a sudden they put two and two together. Okay, that treachery created such a rift in the family that they wanted to kill the other one. It was a violent, like, this is not playing around. 
As a matter of fact, the rift in the family between the Israelites and the Edomites, which are Esau's lineage, still have ramifications today. Okay, inheritance is no joke. Where you start seeing this become really important to the Jewish people is when you address the issue of the promised land. You all heard that phrase, the promised land? We now know it as Israel, right? The promised land. Do you know why it's called that? Because Abraham was told to leave where he was and go to a special place that he had never been to before. And God said, I will give you that land as your inheritance to your children's children. It was promised to him. So when they get out of Egypt and they're this bigger group of people known as the Hebrews, they come up and they go, oh, look, there's the land that was promised to us. So it's called the promised land. Very simple, right? But when they get in, they realize, well, there's some people living there. So they have to fight and earn that inheritance. But really, God gave it to them. If we're going to talk about them earning it, God had already given it to them ahead of time. It was a gift. So once they get in the land, there's 12 tribes of them. Do you remember why? Because Jacob, smooth boy wonder, remember him? As he grew up, his name was changed from Jacob to Israel. That's where we get the name Israel. He had 12 boys. Out of those 12 boys, his favorite one was Joseph, who was one of the youngest, second to the youngest. Joseph, when they split out the land, they divided into 12 pieces. The weird thing is Joseph gets two. There's no territory called Joseph. It actually goes to his two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh. Well, if he gets two, somebody got bumped. Who's the person that got bumped? Levi. Levi, God said, you're not going to get a territory because I'm your inheritance. I will sprinkle you and give you a bunch of cities all throughout the land, but you're going to be my temple workers. You're going to be my spiritual guides. You have access to me like nobody else. When no one else can get near me, your team can. So I'm your inheritance. And that's how it launched. But what's intriguing is that it was supposed to pass on forever. So anyone that was in the Simeon tribe should have had that forever. So when you were born into it, you didn't do anything to earn your family land. You were just born. It's a perk of being born in that tribe. And because they believe it's forever, it's the reason why there's still so much fighting in the Middle East today. Why? Because for a long time, the Jews were kicked out of their promised land until 1948. They were allowed to go back in, and the reason why they're still mad is what? They don't have all their land. So they're fighting with the Palestinian people and saying, it's mine, and the Palestinians are going, no, it's not. You've been gone for a really long time. This is mine. And they're still arguing over Jerusalem and that dome on the rock with their special temple area. All of this fighting is about the story I'm telling you right now. You see, you couldn't just sell your family land away. You just joined in and said, since you're a part of this family, you get this stuff. You're only stewarding it. It's family land. Now, this is where 
you probably go, okay, so pastor, I get it, I'm tracking with you, but why do I care? Think about it in terms of spirituality. What we're gonna find out is we were just told through Jesus we were given an inheritance. It was a gift. There are certain perks to being in a family of God. You didn't earn it, you're just stewarding it. It ultimately is because of who you're attached to, who you're connected to. So what I never wanna hear out of your mouth is man, I worked really hard and that's why God's giving me good stuff. Oh no, he had good stuff planned for you before you ever got saved. Make sense? All right, so having said all that, let's talk about why God did that. I don't know why he used this system, but I know how useful it was. The inheritance system set up three things at least. You might wanna write these down. Number one, believers are God's inheritance. Believers are God's inheritance. What do I mean? God had his kids in the Garden of Eden. They fell into sin and he lost them for a time. And so through Jesus, he got them back. That was his inheritance. His people are his inheritance. That's one thing. The second thing is this. It foreshadowed the true son and heir. What do I mean? Think of John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What matters about the firstborn son? They inherit a double portion from the father. Therefore, Jesus is the true heir to all things of heaven, right? So the first one was we are God's inheritance. The second one is that the inheritance system was pointing that there was going to be a son of God who would inherit all things of heaven. So why is that important? Because of number three. Believers share in the inheritance of Jesus. We are called co-heirs with Jesus. All that Jesus has, he calls us siblings and shares it with us. Is that important? Dramatically important. And I'm gonna tell you why. But before I get to that, let me just share one interesting point. At least it's interesting to me, and I have the microphone. <laughs> and it's this. Paul the Apostle had an intriguing challenge when the church got started. Because you gotta remember, in the beginning, all Christians were Jews. It started out with the Jews. Well, then one day, God's like, <clears throat> so you have other kids, right? Like there's other people in the family. Who's that? Well, they're non-Jews. What? Yeah, they get to come in too. No, they don't. Yeah, they do. All of a sudden, God sends Paul to be the primary minister to the non-Jews, and he has to convince the rest of the Jews they're legit. Here's why this is a problem. To Jews, what matters most? Bloodline. So what are they gonna argue? You don't belong here. You're not part of us. You've never been a Jew. You weren't born a Jew. You can never get in. God gave us special stuff. You need to stay outside. And then Paul said this. Hold up, guys. As a matter of fact, we all need to be born again into a new spiritual family, and then we get our inheritance. So don't tell me non-Jews aren't legit. 
they're just as legit as we are. Okay, that was a hard sell because to a Jew, everything is lineage, everything's about paper, everything's about family line, everything's about blood. So in the beginning, there was a big clash. The Jewish Christians didn't like the non-Jewish Christians to come in. Eventually, we got in. Does that make sense? All right, now, having talked about all this inheritance, let's get practical. What did we inherit by being part of the family of God? I'm gonna give you four examples. Ready? Four of the big ones. There's a bunch of them, but I'm gonna give you four big ones. Here we go. First one, salvation. This concept of salvation, people use the phrase kind of lightly, dude, you saved? You saved? Man, you gotta raise your hand and get saved. You gotta come front and get saved. Everyone keeps saying the word saved. What do you mean saved? Saved from what? Remember I told you at the beginning that there is a fury of God called wrath coming after sin and coming after the enemies of God? You were saved from that. If there's an oncoming car and I dive and knock you out of the way, I saved you from the oncoming car. That's what you keep referring to. You got saved from eternal damnation. You got saved from the wrath of God. You got saved from the dangerous place. So when you say, I have salvation, it means I was wrecking my world and Jesus saved me from it. That's what it means. You got that as a free gift. It was given by grace through faith. You didn't earn it, but God gave it to you when you became a member of the family. Number two, you got eternal life. Remember, eternal life is quality even more than quantity. We think of eternal life as living forever, but eternal life is different than eternal damnation. In other words, there's a quality of living, of vibrancy, of spiritual alive that not everybody gets for the rest of eternity. You, as a child of God, were inherited into a family eternal life. You will now live forever with the vibrancy and a life that Jesus will bring. Does that make sense? All right, one person thought so. Let's go to number three. Third benefit, partnership in the kingdom of God. Partnership in the kingdom of God, what do I mean? When we say yes to God and he sends the Holy Spirit to dwell in our hearts and we are alive, there is now an open channel between us and heaven. It means that we are walking temples of the presence of God. It means that wherever you step your foot is now holy ground. Everywhere you move is a moving piece of heaven. Meaning that when Jesus was demonstrating the kingdom of God, he was doing radical stuff that doesn't normally happen on earth. Why? Because he was pulling from a whole different location. You and I live in that reality right now. That's crazy, yeah? Once we get this concept of what living in the kingdom is, and that's what we studied last year, you start realizing, man, my life is no longer the same. I'm a walking piece of heaven. That's intense. Okay, number four. The best thing you got in your inheritance is number four. Connection with him. Connection with God. Remember, heaven is awesome not because of what you get, but because of who you get, 
right? It's this idea you get to be with God. He is the giver of life. He is everything that you are designed to be. He is every blessing, and you get to be with him. All right. Now, I will tell you one other caveat. We are living in an unusual time of the kingdom of now, but not yet. Now, but not yet. What does it mean? It means you have some awesome now, but way more awesome later. That's what it means. It means that you're only getting a foretaste of what is so extraordinary about being a Christian right now, and there's more to come. Let me give you a couple examples. For example, you get eternal life now, but you have yet to get your glorified body, meaning that right now you're a walking piece of heaven, but later you're going to be all heaven. Does that make sense? Right now, you get like super connection and power from heaven, then you'll walk in the fullness of heaven. So even though it's extraordinary now, there's even more to come. Here's another one. Right now, you get the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and being with you all the time. Then you'll see God face to face. Man, come on. Not only do you have Holy Spirit now, which I don't even think we are even understanding why that's such a huge deal, but later you get all of him face to face. So as amazing as it is now, and we should praise him now, he ain't done yet. There's a lot more to come. So when you hear this phrase, you have been given an inheritance I want you to realize what a big deal that is. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Praise God. Woo. All right. In our missional communities this week, in our, uh, our small groups, uh, we're going to talk about this idea of how do we live in gratitude for now but not yet. Uh, and really, we just need some time to circle up together and kind of have a praise circle. You know what I'm talking about? We need to just start vocalizing and sharing what we're thankful for because, man, God is so good to us. And not only is he great now, but this glorious future, we should be thanking him for it right now. So maybe we just need to circle up and talk about the goodness of God, yeah? We're gonna be doing that this week. All right, let's go to the second part of verse 11, which is almost identical to what we covered last week. So I'm only gonna highlight two pieces, right? Here's what it says. Having been predestined, according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All right, it brings up that idea of predestination. We talked about it last week. I'm not gonna do it again. It merely means God had a plan before he got started, and it was about you, that he chose you before you became a good guy, even before you became a bad guy, right? So it's a very personal issue. So since we talked about that, let me just highlight two things that it means. Number one is theoretical, and it's this. God made us up. We didn't make him up. What do I mean? If you are in academic institutions today that are secular, which my first two degrees were in secular institutions in places that did not like God. I was in a very anti-God environment for most of my early education, right? And I had to hear this all the time, which was, you know, if you look out throughout the world, mankind has always created gods. Man, the Greeks created gods, the Norse people created gods, everybody creates gods. 
They just create gods because they don't know how to explain stuff, so they just make stuff up. There is no real God. You guys are just making it up in your head. Now, the problem with that is when we're feeling strong, we can kind of go, no, you're just being stupid. When we feel weak, Satan peppers us with that exact same phrase. Why? You're hanging out in home, you've been praying about something, nothing's moving. And you start hearing this voice in your head that says, are you sure this is legit? Like this whole Christian thing, like nothing's happened recently. What if you're making it all up? What if this whole prayer thing, you're just like talking to the air, man? Like what if there's not, yeah, a guy named Jesus showed up a long time ago, but he wasn't who he said it. And all of a sudden you start hearing all these whispers. Here's what I wanna be. I wanna be that voice outside your head that says, don't you dare fall for that. There was a time when God was and we weren't. That means he's more real than we are. I need you to understand, he made us up. We didn't make him up. It was not a concoction of our minds. As a matter of fact, he's more real than we are. Amen? Amen. How do we know that? Because it was predestined as a plan before we even got rolling how things were going to go. God called his shots, and he's been carrying it out right in front of our face. It is real because there is prophecy telling you even what's next. If that has been laid down, don't tell me there's no God. Amen? All right, second thing, and this is very important to some of us today, is that when you hear the phrase predestined, it means chosen, chosen on purpose. There are some of us in our lives that we know what it is to be merely tolerated. Let's say you're in a friend group, and your friend group is all the cool kids, you're the tag-along. Let's say, for example, there is a, you're a little bit older and you have a group of friends, but everybody just allows you to show up with them, but you're not part of the planning. There are all of us have had some aspect of our lives where we felt merely tolerated, and that is a very lonely and terrible place. Toleration is not good. We want to be cared for, and we want to matter. The very concept of predestination promises that God is not simply tolerating you. He is absolutely enamored with you. Because here's what's interesting. You and I decrease as we go along. We get tired, we get wore out, we, we hear the same thing over again, and we kind of go on autopilot. God doesn't. He never diminishes, which means that when he was fired up to rescue you and plan your salvation beforehand, just as excited as he was then, he's excited right now. He never waned. Nothing slowed down. He never got tired of you. You got tired of you. He's not tired of you. He's still just as into you as the day he created you. God wants to be around you. He loves watching you when you sleep. It's just like a brand new baby when you're so enamored with his child, he feels that same way with you all the time because he does not diminish. You see, there's some of us that really need to get out of our head that God is going, fine, I guess I'll save you, whatever. I got a bunch of good people, you might as well tag along. God is not forced into rescuing us. He really loves you, and we've got to let that soak into our hearts. So be encouraged. You know, the other part of that verse reminds me of a very popular passage called Romans 8.28. Many of you guys have heard this or written it down on something. Maybe it's on your fridge, that kind of thing, right? 
says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, we love that one because it says that God does incredible things with us and he has a plan for us. But I want to explain what it doesn't mean, and then I'll share again what it does mean. Here's what it doesn't mean, that everything's good. That is incorrect. If you ever fall into this default position where you go, man, I should probably just praise God because everything's good, my head's just probably in the wrong place, garbage. God calls bad stuff bad. As a matter of fact, till Jesus defeated death, death was called the enemy. In other words, just call it what it is. If there was abuse in your life, what they did to you is absolutely unacceptable. You don't have a weird perception on it. It was wrong. All of it was wrong. Bad people do bad stuff and bad things happen. Yes, disease is bad. We're not calling it good. That Bible verse does not say everything's good. As a matter of fact, it says because everything is messed up here, God has to work overtime. So here's what the verse does say. Even though it's bad, God doesn't leave it that way. That verse says, no matter what was done to you, he can turn it around. What it does say is no matter how much evil was perpetrated, he can redeem it into glory. It said that if the enemy tried to shut you down, he can flip that on its head and use it to lift you up. That's what the verse says. So when you are facing something, you can say, listen, what I'm facing is terrible. Thank goodness I have my Jesus who's going to do something with it. Amen? Amen. All right, let's close it out with verse 12. He said, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ, the Jews, Christians, might be to the praise of his glory. How does our salvation bring glory to God? Well, it's simply this. Remember, not only is the rest of the world watching, but the supernatural world is watching. And every time God, in his infinite love and kindness, extends a rebel, grace and mercy, the angels say, wow. Your rescue makes him look good. He is an extraordinary savior because he keeps saving people. You see, when he set about this plan to come and rescue his people, he knew that in doing so, all of creation would be amazed. You guys, our lives are walking trophies to how incredible God is. But lest you think wrongly that the only way you're going to bring glory to God is if you come up with some great ministry and it's flashy, let me remind you of my favorite example of how glory can come from the most unusual circumstances. Anybody remember the story of Job, right? Job's a big book, right, in the Bible. It's believed to be the most ancient, as a matter of fact, the, most, the first one written. Okay, well, in that story of Job, if you're brand new to it, let me tell you how it goes. God and Satan are having a conversation. We won't get into why. But God says, hey, I have this hardcore guy named Job. Man, that guy totally loves me. And he points it out to Satan. Have you seen that guy? And Satan says, of course I've seen him. 
Man, the only reason that guy loves you is because you protect him all the time. And all you do is bless him. Look, the dude's loaded. Everything's going great for this guy. Take that stuff away, man, he'll curse you to your face. God goes, I'll take that bet. Have at him. And by the time Satan gets done with him, his children are dead. His entire uh, ability to sustain himself and all of his wealth is wiped out. And he is struck with horrific disease and he has open sores all over his body and he's weeping in a pile of ashes. It sounds like, yay, that's a good story. Now, for those of you that are afraid of the tension, at the end, God makes it right. Okay, cool. The majority of the entire book, that's how it is. And what's intriguing is Job doesn't know why. So he's spending his whole time going, what did I do wrong? Well, what's the answer? Nothing. You didn't do anything wrong. It's not about you. Who's it about? God and Satan. You're like, wait, what? Okay, hold on. Let me tell you again a fact about the book of Job. What did Job do that was so cool in his book? If you had a book written about you, wouldn't you hope that it was like, and then he slayed a giant? What did Job do? Nothing. Literally, what did Job build? Nothing. What did Job accomplish? Nothing. Actually, all he did was cry and complain. That's his book, right? So why is that a big deal? Because of this one reason. While he cried, he chose God. As a matter of fact, one of my life verses comes out of Job, and it says, though he slay me, yet will I worship him. Because his point was, where else am I going to go? And you go, well, I don't understand how that brings glory to him. Well, hold on. When God talks to Satan, all demons pay attention and all angels pay attention. And here's how that conversation would have gone. Hey, Satan, come here for a second. See that guy that you just thrashed? Yeah. He's heard from me, but he's never seen me. He wonders whether or not this stuff is made up in his head. He has no clue, no confirmation that I'm real. Do you understand that he has nothing and he still chooses me? You, on the other hand, I made you the most beautiful, perfect, you were smarter than everybody else, you're faster than everybody else, you're stronger than everybody else, and you saw me in my full glory. And what did you do? Turned your back on me. Look at him. He's got nothing, and he chooses me. You know how embarrassing that is for you? And all the angels are like, oh, dang. Gosh, that's, oh, that's embarrassing. So remember this. God's not waiting for you to come up with some brilliant ministry to glorify him. Just choose him when every distraction is trying to pull you away.